Hello, David Penn here, and welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast. Uh, please go to the subscribe button and click that, and click the like button, and spread the word. And why I say spread the word, uh, this is an action-orientated podcast. Uh, we here at the Free People Radio are interested in a people's movement. I am interested in being part of a people's movement that puts the human will into the political and brings pressure upon our leaders such that we have a pro-human, a pro, uh, pro-human, pro-human dignity, uh, pro-human rights uh, future uh, so that we can go forward into the future together and, and, and survive as a human race. We're on the precipice of uh, nuclear war. And uh, as I sit back at home and I, I go, where's the protest? Where are the people in the streets screaming against uh, the regime because of the threat of nuclear war? And everybody's watching football and they're in the mall shopping. There's no protest movement. I really ha have an agenda on these first po podcasts trying to set a, a predicate for uh, future conversations. And I was thinking about what the subject matter was for this fourth podcast. And thank you for coming back. Uh, and I just couldn't avoid talking about the Ukraine. I really didn't want to. There's so many things to talk about that are critical. Uh, and everybody's talking about the Ukraine in the conservative media space, in media space generally. And I think, you know, one more voice. But I can't, in good conscience, avoid talking about this issue because this is the issue that can kill me and kill you and our children and our children's children, and so on and so forth. So I have to, as a, as a responsible political activist and American citizen, comment upon this, both because I have a unique uh, view of the history uh, and because my family is from Ukraine. So in terms of the history, history is a narrative. It's a story. Uh, we get it presented to us as if it is the truth. But there are many versions of truth. That, for example, and I think, Many of you have thought about this before. If there's a car accident and there's people on four corners looking at that accident, they're going to see four different versions of that accident. Every version is valid. Uh, one version, it's one driver's fault. Another version, it's another, the other driver's fault. The, the issue is sorting out things and making them simple. Everything's the same but a little different. Simplicity Simplicity, simplicity. And that's how we figure out what's going on. So in terms of my historical narrative or the story I'm going to tell you, it's a version of the truth. It's the suppressed version. It's the version that you're not supposed to hear and I'm not supposed to hear. But I know it. Why? Because I have a family history, a family tradition of stories passed on from the people who were there and died there to the people who left there who were my parents. In fact, my whole family is from the whole uh, crescent that extends from Latvia down into the Ukraine, and that entire area is, is linked together historically. Uh, the, the origin of Ukraine and Russia is common. Those two countries both come from the same rut. They diverged over time. Uh, mostly through history, mostly Ru Russia or the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union has dominated and, and incorporated Ukraine into its borders. 
Uh, so there's a deep tie, lots of intermarriage, but there is there's definite differences there, and we're looking at a civil war in a country uh, that has now mushroomed to involve uh, a nuclear superpower confrontation, and the danger that is facing me is so profound, I must speak out about it today, and thank you for listening. Uh, can you play that first clip, please? Good morning, everybody. I wanted to provide an update on the situation in Ukraine uh, and the steps that the United States is taking in response. Over the last several days, we've continued to be deeply concerned by events in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen an illegal referendum in Crimea, an illegitimate uh, move by the Russians to annex Crimea, uh, and dangerous risks of escalation including threats to Ukrainian personnel in Crimea and threats to southern and eastern Ukraine as well. Uh, these are all choices that the Russian government has made, choices that have been rejected by the international community as well as the government of Ukraine. And because of these choices, uh, the United States is today moving, as we said we would, to impose additional costs on Russia. Based on the executive order that I signed in response to Russia's initial intervention in Ukraine, we're imposing sanctions on more senior officials of the Russian government. In addition, we are today sanctioning a number of other individuals with substantial resources and influence who provide material support to the Russian leadership, as well as a bank that provides material support to these individuals. Now, we're taking these steps as part of our response to what Russia has already done in Crimea. At the same time, the world is watching with grave concern as Russia has positioned its military in a way that could lead to further incursions into southern and eastern Ukraine. For this reason, we've been working closely with our European partners to develop more severe actions that could be taken if Russia continues to escalate the situation. As part of that process, I signed a new executive order today that gives us the authority to impose sanctions not just on individuals but on key sectors of the Russian economy. This is not our preferred outcome. These sanctions would not only have a significant impact on the Russian economy but could also be disruptive to the global economy. However, Russia must know that further escalation will only isolate it further from the international community. The basic principles that govern relations between nations in Europe and around the world must be upheld in the 21st century. That includes respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity. The notion that nations do not simply redraw borders or make decisions at the expense of their neighbors simply because they are larger or more powerful. One of our other top priorities continues to be providing assistance to the government of Ukraine so it can stabilize its economy and meet the basic needs of the Ukrainian people. Uh, as I travel to Europe next week to meet with the G7 and other European and Asian allies, I once again urge Congress to pass legislation that is necessary to provide this assistance and do it right away. Expressions of support are not enough. We need action. I also hope that the IMF moves swiftly to provide a significant package of support for Ukrainians as they pursue reforms. In Europe, I'll also be reinforcing a message that Vice President Biden carried to Poland and the Baltic states this week. America's support 
for our NATO allies is unwavering. We're bound together by our profound Article 5 commitment to defend one another and by a set of shared values that so many generations sacrificed for. We've already increased our support for our Eastern European allies, and we will continue to strengthen NATO's collective defense, and we will step up our cooperation with Europe on economic and energy issues as well. Now, let me uh, close by making a final point. Diplomacy between the United States and Russia continues. Uh, we've emphasized that Russia still has a different path available, one that de-escalates the situation and, and one that involves Russia pursuing a diplomatic solution with the government in Kiev, uh, with the support of the international community. The Russian people need to know, and Mr. Putin needs to understand, that the Ukrainians shouldn't have to choose between the West and Russia. We want the Ukrainian people to determine their own destiny and to have good relations with the United States, with Russia, with Europe, with anyone that they choose. That can only happen if Russia also recognizes the rights of all the Ukrainian people to determine their future as free individuals and as a sovereign nation, rights that people and nations around the world understand and support. Thank you very much, everybody. Well, it's such a beautiful scene there in front of the helicopter. And President Obama is such a great orator. Uh, he could serve shit and make you think it was caviar. So the, the Atlantic Charter, which we've been discussing, ran through that whole speech talking about the rights of the Ukrainian people to self-determine their future, that they don't have to choose between the East and the West. Well. What's great about our internet and our research capabilities right now today, and of course that's changing every day because censorship is falling down upon us, is you can go right to Wikipedia and take a look at what was really going on behind this lofty oratory. And a big subject of today's podcast is how the Obama administration, working with George Soros in the Ukraine, all easily to verify you can just go to the uh, uh, Wikipedia and find it for yourself. Uh, our government funded a revolution in Ukraine which deposed a pro-Russian president who had been duly elected. Uh, that president was integrating, had made a decision to integrate economically with the Russian uh, government, one economic bloc, uh, with the Russian Federation, and lo and behold, uh, there was a great people's uprising there, which was funded by the U.S. State Department. And for people that wonder whether our government gets involved with causing revolutions and deposing leaders, here's uh, this thing burned my printer out. This is right on Wikipedia. You can go to uh, United States Involvement in Regime Change. That's United States Involvement in Regime Change. I mean, this thing's a Ph.D. thesis. And that's on Wikipedia, which is certainly not an unbiased source of information. So you can go look this up for yourself. And uh, there's just an incredible history of our government getting involved. But this popped up during the, during the Bush and, and uh, Obama administration was in everybody's you know, mind, the background of our mind. What's going on in the Ukraine seemed far away. 
Um, but this this conflict, this controversy between the Ukrainian and the Russian people, and between the Russian people and the states of Europe, goes back very, very, very long. We could go back 500 years. Let's just say, going back to the end of the Russian Empire, when the Tsars, the Romanovs, were killed, that Tsar was the first cousin of the King of England. Oh. Conspiracy theory? No. Go look it up. These people were actually related. And before the communists uh, executed, or the Bolsheviks executed uh, Tsar Nicholas, mostly there was good relations between the Russians and, and the Western colonial powers, better relations. And after that uh, assassination and the overthrow of the royal family, uh, the British government and the colonial uh, governments of Europe became very anti-Soviet uh, Union, very anti-Bolshevism, uh, very anti-communism. And that is the starting point in the early 1900s of where we are today. In fact, when the Russian Revolution took place, there was something that you can look up. It's even in that movie, uh, boy, with Omar Sharif. There's a great movie by, with Omar Sharif about this revolution, and uh, they talk about the white Russians that were opposing the Bolsheviks. Thank you. If you can look that up, I can't remember the name of the movie. Uh, it's 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 it, yeah. There you go. Let's find that movie. Uh, Doctor Shivago. There it is. 1960s, 1965. Super popular movie. I think it won an Academy Award, and it talked a lot about the white Russians. White Russians, that's you know, kind of anachronism. The white Russians were those people in the Ukraine that were resisting the Bolsheviks. Uh, there was a huge war to put down the Ukrainian area, uh, to subjugate it and make it part of the Soviet Union. And uh, though that sentiment, that anti or that, that conflict between the white Russians or the Ukrainians and the Bolsheviks, that's the seeds that were planted that are, have blossomed forth this potential for nuclear war. So when the Russians, when the Soviet Union subjugated the Ukrainians and across that whole crescent from the Baltic states all the way down into the Ukraine, that, that border between the Soviet Union and Western Europe, there was a huge famine. It was called the Holodomor famine. It was 1932 and 1933. Millions and millions of people were killed. 7.5 million people were killed or died during this famine. And why I say it, they were killed, there's a lot of uh, scholar uh, scholarship on this and a lot of controversy among the scholars. Was this accidental? Was it poor planning, poor central planning? Uh, was it intentional? I, you know, every time there's a communist takeover, there's a famine. There was a huge famine here. In 32, when Mao took over in China in 1949, there was a huge famine there. <clears throat> you know, having a, uh, an institutional breakdown, which um, makes it impossible for the people to have enough food to eat, is a good cover story for the intentional subjugation of the people with famine. And you just have to look in the newspapers today. We have a growing famine around the world today that is associated with a growing communist movement in the world, in our country today. 
we are having food shortages for the first time in my lifetime, and those food shortages, food shortages are anticipated to intensify. So when communists take over, people starve to death. And when people starve to death, they don't have the energy to organize. They don't have the energy to resist. And when resistance is broken through famine, the power of the regime becomes omnipresent, and that's the end of the resistance. So this channel, Free People, this podcast is aimed at resistance to what I believe is a growing tyrannical regime. We have censorship. We have uh, vastly more uh, mortality in this country. Our government is doing things which I think are anti-American against the very Atlantic Charter that undergirds our entire uh, philosophical and political framework uh, today. And this has popped off really in the Ukraine, where we have the self-determination of the Ukrainian people. We're arguing over who intervened into the Ukrainian uh, politics. And of course, both sides, the Russian side and the United States and NATO, the Western side, intervened into this Ukrainian uh, politics, and it has led us to this a potential Holocaust that we're on the brink of today. But, the, you know, we go back to this, this, this great famine. It was in the 30s. And then World War II broke out. And what happened? What happened was Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, went to war and attacked the Soviet Union. If you could play this next piece, that would be very helpful. September 1940. While America remains neutral, Hitler has mainland Europe in his grip. But in the skies over Britain, the Nazis' relentless westward advance is halted. It is a defeat that forces Hitler to turn his attention towards the ultimate goal, the conquest and annihilation of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union represented the nexus of everything that Hitler hated. He saw it as a bastion of communism and Judaism. And if it were not defeated, ultimately the Soviet Union would destroy Germany and destroy the Aryan race. But there was also just sheer pragmatism here. The Soviet Union was the Großraumwirtschaft, the great economic space. They needed the raw materials, the oil, the food, and by annexing the Soviet Union, they'd be able to sustain a long war and fend off any British-American attacks. June 22, 1941. Hitler launches Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Across an 1,800-mile front, Hitler's army of over 4 million Wehrmacht troops surges forward, destroying everything in its path. This was the largest army that had been assembled in the history of the world. And the Germans demonstrated an operational and tactical mastery that the, the Soviets simply could not match. By the winter of 1941, their brutal advance has brought them to the brink of victory. Leningrad is under siege, and German panzer divisions are at the gates of Moscow. 
Seeking a devastating tactical and ideological blow, Hitler turns his attentions towards Stalingrad. Stalingrad was an important target for Hitler because he knew by taking it, he would insult Stalin. He also knew he would force Stalin to try to take it back and he would be able to wear down the Red Army. But also it was an important city because it would permit him to pivot south into the Caucasus and take all these oil-producing regions and make Germany self-sufficient in petroleum. For both sides, the stakes for the Battle of Stalingrad are immense. For Hitler, to fail at Stalingrad would be an enormous blow to the Nazi myth, it would be an enormous blow to the war itself. Similarly, Joseph Stalin was unrelenting. He would not tolerate defeat. He would not tolerate pulling back. To surrender or to give ground would be met by the, the utmost sanction. All right. So there we have it. And why do I play these clips? I play these clips because this is all online. And again, if we don't know where we've been, it's pretty hard to figure out where we are. And if we don't know where we are, how do we know where we're going to go? And there was this huge uh, battle between the Germans and the Russians. And there was an interesting piece in there that uh, the, the Soviet Union represented everything that Hitler hated. It was a bastion of um, communism and, and Judaism. And Karl Marx was a Jew. Well, let's just clarify something going forward. Uh, Marxism does not posit that there's a supreme being or a God. So when someone says someone's a Jew and they don't believe in God, and I'm not making this up, this is in the Jewish constitution, which is known as the First Testament, the, first, the Bible, the Holy Bible, the first books, the five books of Moses, that's the constitution of the Jewish people. And it says in there quite clearly, if you don't believe in God, you're not a Jew. You're not an Israelite. People identify with it. They say they're Jewish because, I don't know, cultural Jews. But if they're not believing in, in God, according to their own tradition, they're not Jewish. They're not part of the tribe of Israel. They're excommunicated for their faithlessness. So people can say Marx was a Jew, and of course, Hitler viewed Marxism and Judaism as inextricably linked. Well, there's some history why that might be, because these people that lived along that border, we saw four million Wehrmacht German soldiers moving in, that whole crescent from the Baltic states all the way down through the Ukraine, this is where millions and millions of Jewish people had relocated in what was called the diaspora. And these people were poor, really poor. They were poor peasant farmers living on the land at subsistence level, and they maintained their traditions of faith and their religious ritual. They probably sought a better life as Europe was industrializing. The Industrial Revolution brought all kinds of scientific benefits, as we've discussed. But the Jewish people that lived in this area were barred from participation in that increasing material wealth. Well, the children of some of these religious people said, hey, hey, I want to move to the city. I want running water. I want electricity. I want indoor. Well, no, you can't have that. You're a Jew. And there was discrimination against those Jewish people. So the Marxist movement, which was so heavily dominated 
by Jewish people. It was a revolutionary movement. It was a movement that was the uh, rev the revolution against the status quo, the status quo of empire, the status quo of colonialism. It was the revolution against the old world order. And, you know, those people that were at the top of the heap that had colonial powers that were part of the old world order, like Germany, like England, like France, like Spain, and like the United States of America, they didn't want anything to do with this Marxism thing. And there was tremendous repression of Jewish people. It's not surprising they were Marxists. And these Jewish Marxists, ex-Jews, because now they were Marxists, we could call them anti-Jews because their philosophy was against the Jewish tradition. They became part of this Marxist uh, hierarchy that was growing in the, in, the, in the Russian region, and they were part of toppling the, uh, the Russian Empire and deposing the Romanovs, the Tsar, and boy, they just were hated. There's a reason why they got there, something for many, many podcasts in the future. But when people are poor, and they're barred from political expression, and they're uh, killed and raped and oppressed, and their human dignity is removed, and their human rights are removed, they will rise up. So today, it's not bad enough in America. People still are watching television. The Super Bowl's on. You got all this digital media. You got cars. You got food. People are not rising up to this threat, to oppose this threat which is nuclear war. And when nuclear war happens, if it happens, we are going to lose our material comfort. Why don't we rise up before that happens? Why don't we make our voices heard now? Because the human will, the will of the people, we the people, expressed in writing, in oratory, in street protest, in writing your congressmen, in writing your senators, in writing your local representatives, we need a chorus of a, all the American people saying to our leaders, stop it. Stop it. We're not having a nuclear war. We're not sacrificing a generation. We're not descending the world into the kind of chaos that will make life most unpleasant for most of us. Why are they willing to do it? Because their life's going to get better. They're going to go to underground bunkers. They're going to have sumptuous food. They're going to have beautiful women to choose from. They're not going to have to do anything but wait for the radiation to go away. And the rest of us poor bastards are either going to be dead or on the surface fighting to survive. So we have to take action now, right now, every one of us, and take this threat seriously. And that's why I feel compelled to take the time to go through this, even though there is so much media about Ukraine, and I'm going through this Professor Penn history, my version of the reality, and we go back into this German uh, invasion. Well, this, this is something I know something about by what's called oral tradition. Now, can oral tradition be modified so that it's a lie and people are taught lies through their oral tradition? Of course. But the oral tradition I received from my grandfather who came from the Ukraine. My father, who expressed to me what he had learned. What I learned was, was that most of my family was killed in the Ukraine during this invasion when the Wehrmacht, when the Nazi armies came across the Ukraine, going into the Soviet Union, 
in an attempt to subjugate and, and, and destroy the Soviet Union, take, take it over for its resources. But remember what that commentator said, Hitler hated the Jews, and they killed them. They killed them brutally, and my family was the victim of it. And what's so interesting, they weren't killed by Germans. They were killed by Ukrainians. Many, many Ukrainians, Estonians, Latvians, Poles, people on that, that border, that 1,800-mile that border, they had a long history of anti-Semitism, low level in comparison to what happened in the Holocaust, but there was continuous rapes and beatings and murders and thefts and suppression. And when the Nazis came through, they just joined up. They said, hey, where do I join? Some Jew killing going on? Let me in on it. And they killed my family. And I have a story of uh, one of my most revered and learned uh, family members was tied behind a truck and dragged around in a circle through his village till he died. Those are the kind of stories that traumatized me as a youth. Uh, I don't think my father and my grandfather lied to me. I think they were traumatized by these stories. So when people talk about or when the when uh, Putin talks or when the, the Russians talk about a, a Nazi element in Ukraine, well, killed my family, and they were Ukrainians. And actually the most brutal, uh, short killing uh, took place in uh, Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine, in a place called Babiyar, where some 30,000-plus uh, victims were shot to death with small arms fire in three days, which is, you know, crazy. That's just crazy to think about killing 30,000 people with pistols. That's a lot of shooting. Can you play that, that next clip about Bobby R., please? There's a witness that's going to talk about it. The atrocities committed by fascist invaders. He's a witness, and we have a courtroom. Speaking in Ukrainian. Talking about how the Jews were rounded up and shot. That's good enough. Thank you very much. Just turn that off. You know, when you get these source materials, 
And this might have been a movie that was uh, replaying this. I can't really tell for sure if it's actually a source material or derived from the source. Uh, first of all, I didn't want to play. There's, there's, if you go and look this up on YouTube, there's some of the most horrific scenes of this. This was actually well-documented. And the, the, um, the horror of it, it's just very painful to watch, to watch this kind of mass murder. And these, these, this, this genocide was perpetrated. It was supervised by the German Nazis, but it was carried out by the Ukrainian Nazis. So the history of this region is, is very complex, very filled with genocide, very filled with political extremism. Obviously, when people are willing to die, as they're dying right now in the Ukraine, they're pretty worked up about this stuff. And the, the question is, how after you know decades of relative peace, how did we get so stirred up over here again? What re-triggered this violence? So when the, when, the, when the German armies got to Stalingrad, was one of the greatest battles, maybe the greatest battle in human history, the Soviet Union repulsed the Nazis, destroyed that army at Stalingrad, and started going back across towards Germany. Uh, on the way across the Ukraine, I think the Germans killed seven or eight million Ukrainians. And when the Russians came back across the Ukraine in the other direction, another seven or eight or nine million Ukrainians died. I mean, these people were engaged in all-out, you know, war at a, at a level that is beyond my comprehension or your comprehension, just because we haven't seen it. In other words, you kill everything you see. And that's, that's something we want to avoid. So when they went back across culminated in the, the, the end of World War II. Could you play that, that next clip, please? El presidente soviético Mikhail Gorbachev emerge de la profundidad de su lucha política con el Partido Comunista con apariencia robusta y con confianza en su poder, cuando saluda al secretario de Estado norteamericano James Baker en el Kremlin. Es la primera oportunidad que tiene el mundo exterior desde la reunión del Comité Central del Partido Comunista de observar la salud política de Gorbachev. El líder soviético casi rebosaba de alegría al evaluar su maniobra para despojar al Partido Comunista de su monopolio en el poder de la Unión Soviética. Por primera vez, el mismo Gorbachev dijo públicamente si seguiría siendo líder del partido de la Unión Soviética y si se postulaba como presidente en las elecciones. Su respuesta esperen y verán a la... So, let's keep this in mind. We might even play it again, because this is, this is something that happened in 91. So, World War II ended in 45, ended in 45. The Soviet Union subjugated and took over its entire conquered region, Poland, East Germany, Hungary, this whole area that they went across on the way to take over, this all became part of the Soviet Union and, the, and, the, and the, what they called the Iron Curtain. An Iron Curtain fell across Eastern Europe. Uh, this, the, the Soviets took a very different approach to this than the West did, allegedly, because we, you know, we talked about the Atlantic Charter, the self-determination of peoples, that the United States and Britain didn't seek to aggrandize themselves or to 
in any way control the conquered peoples that were in the wake of their success. And they set people free, allegedly. And that was the big difference. The Soviet Union did not follow the Atlantic Charter. They were interested in keeping their territory. And they did. They kept all these areas. The Baltic states, they were part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And this ushered in a very, very long period of what would be called the Cold War. It was a war, cold, not a hot war. A Cold War was basically fought between proxy states, the Soviet Union back in one group of people and the United States back in another group of people. And then during that period, look at all these interventions that the CIA made into the politics of people that were allegedly supposed to self-determine. See, things got a little funny. Great sentiment started out with the Atlantic Charter, but once they got into the game, no rules. Not a failure of God, not a failure of institutions, a failure of the people who were in charge of these institutions. And they very quickly gave up their ideals because in a fight, hey, in a fight, in a fight, they had reasons to say that the ends justify the means. Actually, once you reach that point, when you're willing to give up your ideals and your principles on the way to the end point, where you end up is not very nice. And that's where we are today, on the brink of nuclear war, on the brink of mass chaos and destruction, on the brink of tyranny, and we have to fight this. I'm a political activist in Minnesota, and this is the most important issue of our day. So not getting caught up in little chicken wing gatherings is very important. We need to be motivated and we need to be active at a much higher level. For example, in all these states, all these states have political units. In Minnesota, we have Senate districts, and each Senate district has political organization. Those Senate districts remind me of the way the British drew the maps in the Middle East to turn people against each other to be sure that there's no political organization. All of these districts, these boundaries, keep activists away from each other so they can't communicate, so that the hierarchy is the only people in control. Well, it's we the people who are in control. So I'm going to urge every one of you, as you listen to the podcast, I'm going to keep saying this, please join your local political unit. You notice I'm not saying Democrat or Republican. Join your local political unit because we the people are engaged in a dialogue. If we get off the couch and get involved, we the people can work this out and we can influence, we can put guardrails on the unlimited ambitions of our leaders. Our leadership is Darwinist. They do not care if we survive. They want to win. They believe in survival of the fittest. I don't think that's a really good policy for me and my children. I think that we, the people, need to get into this process and make our will felt. Get into the streets. I want to see when I drive down the interstate, people standing up on the bridges and the war. No nuclear war. Well, we did this in the 80s. Why can't we do it today? Well, why we can't is because we're brain dead. And these podcasts and the more and more people that are getting involved 
in the uh, broadcast world, we're doing it. Well, some of us are doing it to entertain. And of course, I want to be entertaining so that you listen. But this is so serious that I'm really trying to just go through a history that will let you see the contradictions and the lies in the narrative that we're being fed. Again, you know, shit served as caviar, and you will like it. You will like it. Uh, come on. Let's quit bullshitting around with this now. This history can be interpreted a lot of different ways. And at the end of this, I'm going to make it very simple. Because there's both, both versions of history. You know, that the Soviet Union and then the Russians intervened in the Ukraine, and we have to defend the Ukrainians to help them self-determine. And the Russian version that the United States is in the Ukraine uh, subverting a pro-Russian government, all these narratives are true or false. It's however you want to look at them. But we can make this really simple, and that's where we're going to head to at the end of this podcast. So this Soviet Union, uh, this Cold War lasted in the early 90s. In this last bit, it's such a critical bit because there's, there's plot points in world history. And when the Soviet Union was coming down, that was when the elder Bush, ex-CIA director, very spooky guy, very spooky guy, in fact, his father was involved in politics. His father actually got in trouble for financing Nazi Germany. He was a financier. So here's the elder Bush, 88 president, came after Reagan, ex-CIA director, ambassador to China, does not get any spookier than President Bush, but also very competent. These were very competent leaders relative to what we have today. Remember, you're only good or bad by comparison. And these guys in the 80s and 90s were a lot more serious and a lot more competent for good or for ill than the current group, which are like the Keystone Cops. But Bush the senior sent his Secretary of State, James Baker, to meet with Gorbachev. And there was alleged to be an agreement that NATO would not advance to the border of Russia because the Russians remembered it had trauma about this huge invasion of the Nazi uh, Wehrmacht almost conquering the country. They just did not want Western military on their borders. It's very reasonable. It's a reasonable request. Now, when this thing broke out a year ago, I was online looking at this history, and there was all kinds of stuff up uh, that you could find with the Google search about this alleged uh, agreement between Bush, through his Secretary of State Baker and Gorbachev, to keep the uh, NATO armies off the Russian border. I went last night to try to find it. It was all gone. It disappeared. And what had been replaced by is a bunch of articles saying that the alleged agreement was a fugazi, that there was never an agreement. In fact, click that right there. What agreement was signed between Russia and NATO? You just Could you go back, please? Just go straight back. And you see right there, people also ask, let's see, what does it say? Um, what was the agreement? Let's scroll down a little bit there. Uh, okay. 
All right, let's let let's let it go. Went away. All right. So what my point is was that there was ample source material about this alleged agreement. When I looked now, I could only find this thing in another language that actually proved that Baker and Gorbachev did get together. And these people looked very happy. They were having a nice get-together. It was very good spirits. Could you play that again, that last clip, just a little bit, so that we can all take a, the last one? Ah, there you go. Yeah. Look at how happy these people are. What a nice meeting it is. Big smiles. These people are doing business. Look at that smile. Oh, everybody's going down the line. Looks like the end of the Cold War to me. It looks like these guys are cutting a deal. They are cutting a deal. The deal's on the table. What deal was on the table? What were these people negotiating? Okay, very good, thank you. Well, the word was they negotiated the future of Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union and the deconstruction of the empire. And part of that deal was alleged to be an agreement that NATO would not go onto the borders of Russia. And now all I can find is that that was untrue. Well, we'll never know if it was true or false because now it's been muddied up. It's muddied up. We're going to have to feel for ourselves what's true or false or good or bad, which is where we're going to be heading to in this podcast because it's actually quite obvious. So during the whole period of the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union protected its borders and it extended all into Eastern Europe. When the Soviet Union fell apart, those former Soviet client states like Poland, Hungary, Yugoslavia, they all became, <clears throat> quote-unquote, free, self-determining. And then NATO started to pick up those states. They started to join NATO for the, not for the military, really. They wanted the economic integration with the European Union. They wanted to make money. Hey, everybody made money in the 80s and 90s. It was a very open and free period. Uh, everybody was having a good time, and, you know, the smoking lamp was lit. In fact, as we know from the President Trump era, these European countries weren't even funding NATO until he put his fo foot down. These people did not view war with the Russians as something that was possible. But something happened on the way to the, to the forum here, which was slowly but surely the State Department of the United States and the English and other former colonial empires, now states of the New World Order, started to push into the areas that really were formerly alleged to be Russian-only, a Russian-only zone, a no-go for the West, a no-go zone. Well, they went right in there. And I think that's really what underlies where we're at today from the Russian perspective, so if we can play that next bit, because we got to characterize. So we need to call people out. Well, here's somebody. This this woman, Victoria Newland, shows up everywhere. Here she goes. We're going to listen to her for a while. Member Cardin, members of this committee, your bipartisan support, your visits to Ukraine, the assistance you have provided have been absolutely essential to the American goal of supporting Ukraine's democratic European future. 
Uh, before I begin today, let's just take a moment, if we may, to honor the sacrifice of Ukrainian pilot and RADA deputy Nadia Savchenko, who was seized in Ukraine in 2014, dragged across the Russian border, and unjustly held and tried in Russia. Today, her hunger strike continues as the court in Rostov again delays an announcement of its verdict. Nadia's Can you stop it there for a second, please? So this is a very standard thing. We're going to tell the story of one unfortunate person. We're all going to feel terrible about this person. This is an appeal to our emotions. Let's blind our reason with an emotional outburst of anger over this unjust imprisonment of some person that nobody remembers her name. It's just a prop in Victoria Newland's play that she's about to run here with the Congress, which, you know, this woman's been around a long time. This is a long time ago. We're going to watch her as, he go, as she goes through. She's kind of our government's expert on fucking up this part of the world. You're looking at the person who is the, uh, she's the front, the front woman of the New World Order's attempts to intervene into this area. Continue, please. Reminder of the pressures Ukraine continues to face, even as it works to build a stronger, more resilient country for its citizens. I want to thank this committee for its continued focus on Nadia Savchenko and all Ukraine's hostages, and for the passage of Senate Resolution 52. We call on Russia to release her immediately and return her to Ukraine and to her family before it's too late. Like Nadia, all across Ukraine, citizens are standing up and sacrificing for the universal values that bind us as a transatlantic community. Oh, stop. For sovereignty. There it is, the transatlantic community. Okay, now everybody needs to figure this one out. I'm from the Ukraine. I have no interest in it personally. I live in Minnesota. You know, they're over there messing around in Ukraine where the transatlantic community, we're going to be covering this a lot. Why do we have a transatlantic community? We fought a war in 1776 to divorce ourselves from that transatlantic community. And why did we do it? Because of their business model. Drugs, slavery, piracy. We had a moment of sanity here in the United States of America in 1776 where we said, no, 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 no. We don't want that business model of the empire. We want the business model of we the people, the business model of well-being, as we were talking about the preamble to our Constitution, for domestic tranquility, which means peace to promote the general welfare, which is well-being, the relationship of man and nature. These people had a completely different organization in how they wanted to do things. So this woman, Victoria Newland, went to Brown University, East Coast, you know, educated in this kind of transatlantic academic tradition, which is permeated and shot through from A to Z with Marxism. She is talking about our transatlantic community. Well, it's her transatlantic community, and I don't want to do any more business with her. She can go off and do her thing. I want to go off and do my thing. My rights are protected. My minority rights are protected by the Constitution of the United States. I don't want anything to do with this, and I hope every one of you listening and watching will realize we don't have to support this scam about the transatlantic community. Our entire political history is about getting divorced from these people.
because they are insane. They are unwell, and the evidence of their unwellness is we're on the brink of nuclear war. That would be like, okay, I'm looking at your chart. Yes, you're going to die. These people are sick. So let's move along, listen to her a little bit more, and then we're going to see her some other contexts. Please. For territorial integrity, for human rights and dignity, for clean and accountable government, and for justice for all. Well, United stop States again, stood- please. Stop again. Justice for all. See, now she's using our fundamental American values to talk about the Ukraine, which is currently a dictatorship with one-party rule, no freedom of the press, no freedom to assemble. This place is as far from our American ideals and our American values as you can get. It's the anti-American expression. Please continue. ...by Ukraine as Russia has sought to stymie its democratic rebirth at every turn. Stop again. Today, however, as you We're going to be talking about here very shortly the Maidan Revolution, of which this woman was up to her eyeballs in it. There was a duly elected government there. It was pro-Russian, and the United States government under Barack Obama spent the money to destabilize that government. Of course, this is my version of the history. There's many versions of this history. They're all true. What version do you want to look at? But again, when we get to the end, this is going to get very simple. Yes, there's two competing stories. There's the Victoria Nuland story that the Soviet Union, now Russia, was intervening into the Ukrainian politics. Obviously, it was true. I'm not a Putin apologist, and I'm not on Putin's side. These people have been batting around the Ukrainian people like a pinball, okay? There's two flippers, the West and the Russians. And the Ukrainian people, they're getting banged around in there, and they're getting destroyed, millions of them. My family killed, over half my family killed there, brutally in my mind. So I can't sleep at night because I got those stories when I was three, four, five, six years old because my grandfather and my father were trying to detox from the horrible stories that they had heard. It reminds me of the Native American tradition, the genocide against the Native Americans, how that is reverberated through the Native American history. When you perpetrate genocide, you fuck people up for generations. And that's what's going on in our country with the Native American community, with the black community, and the Ukrainian. These people are screwed up. They are willing to die because they've been getting killed and run over the top of for so many decades, centuries. Hey, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Let's go on a little bit more. It's democratic rebirth at every turn. Today, however, as you both mentioned, Ukraine's European future is put at risk as Stop. much by... Who is she to say that the Ukrainians want a European future? Where's the data? I want to see the polling data. I want to see the vote that the Ukrainian people want to be European. Because guess what? There's a lot of people that don't like the postmodern values of the European Union. Let's think about what they are in an upcoming podcast. But these are anti-faith values, anti-God values, values that don't strengthen families, that weaken families, that tear parents from children and tear people away from the land and people away from any kind of spiritual 
insight or connection. It's a very unwell, a very unwell anti-well-being philosophy. So not everybody wants to be in on that. Some people want a well-being philosophy. Please continue. Enemies within as by external forces. The oligarchs and kleptocrats who controlled Ukraine for decades. Oh, stop again. I can't take it. Oligarchs and kleptocrats. You know, this really pisses me off. Our country, the United States of America, the wealth disparity in our country is every bit as extreme as the Ukrainian uh, polity is experiencing. We have the concentration of wealth in this country and the, and the, the, the progressive, they call it the progressive movement for a reason, the progressive impoverishment of the American people. Right now, the ravages of inflation, that is a tax taking away our net worth. The concentration of wealth in the hands of very few Americans, less than 1%. We know their names. That's for another podcast. We, have the, we don't call them oligarchs here. We worship them. This is goofy. Please continue. Their business model will be broken. Oh, stop again. Their business model. What about our business model? Drugs. We got a country overridden by drugs, legal and illegal. We have piracy, which is inflation, right? We have wage slavery. We're working our asses off just to eat. Let's go on while she criticizes. You know, Christ said, pick out the log in your own eye before you start pointing out the cinder in somebody else's. Let's work on our own country's problems, Miss Honorable Victoria Newland. Please continue. John reformers succeed in 2016. So they're fighting back with a vengeance using all the levers of the old system. Their control of the media, state-owned enterprises, RADA deputies, the courts, and the political machinery, while holding old loyalties and threats over the heads of decision makers to block change. Against this backdrop, Ukraine's own leaders have been locked for months in a cycle of political infighting and indecision about how to restore unity, trust, and effectiveness. Stop again. Good governance moves slowly. Our country has been stuck with the same wedge issues since 1973. Democracy is messy. Things don't change quickly. Things change very slowly. When you start talking about accelerating change, guess what you're talking about? Dictatorship. Please continue. Coalition and how to reboot the government and its program. Oh, stop Every again. She wants to reboot the government. In other words, we're going to close the machine down. Oh, this is, I mean, please step down, Ms. Newland. You're, we've heard everything we need to hear from you. They want to reboot the government. Okay, here, right here. Go to Wikipedia. This thing burnt my printer out all the times our government, and we remember now, I want to get nice, the Atlantic Charter, beautiful sentiment, the right of people to determine their own political future. Sounded great. Sounded, it is beautiful. It happens to be an ideal we want to work towards, like Star Trek. Star Trek, we even had it in the 1960s series, Star Trek. Don't intervene into other people's things because it's their business. My name is Paul, and it's between you all. Look at all this. So there she said they're going to reboot the Ukrainian government, and they did. They did it. So let's go on to the reboot because, boy, 
Boy, were we involved in this reboot. And so were the Russians. Please, could we just please see the next one? Because she just keeps popping up. This factor, let's go to the next bit. This Victoria Newland keeps turning up like a bad penny. Up oh, here she comes again. She's in the Ukraine this time. I have no doubt after our meeting that President Yanukovych knows what he needs to do. Stop, please. President Yanukovych was the elected president of the Ukraine. This is about 2014. Did the Russians promote him and help him get elected? Probably. Probably they did. But here she's telling him, hey, buddy, you know what you need to do. You know, it's almost like they're going to take him in a room and leave a Luger on the table for him. Hey, you know what you need to do. So please continue, because this is in the middle of the revolution. The whole world is watching. We want to see a better future for Ukraine. I made it absolutely Stop. clear. These people couldn't give a shit about the Ukrainian people. They're engaged in a hundred-year battle with the Russians that goes back to the uh, assassination of the Tsar by the Bolsheviks. The Russians got on the outside with the New World Order at that time. They've been fighting and in conflict constantly. And this is just the latest round of it. And here we have an American diplomat. She's, I think, the Assistant Secretary of State in the country looking very, oh, she's very native. She's got the snow on her hair. And she's telling the president of another country what he needs to do. Okay, this is not friendly, and this is none of our business, but please continue. I want to see a better future for Ukraine. I made it absolutely clear to him that what happened last night, what has been happening in security terms here, is absolutely impermissible in a European state, in a democratic state. The United States stands with you in your search for justice, for human dignity, for security, for economic health and for the European future that you have chosen and that you deserve. Stop, please. We'll be done with this one. So what happened was this Yanukovych decided to throw in with the Russians, to throw in with Putin, and it got the entire, uh, you know, mechanism of the West in all of its uh, 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 crazy, crazy thinking going. So I just want to have a musical interlude which sums up who these people are. Can we just play this next bit that you had up there with uh, Brother Bob? Let's turn that one on there for us. I and I build a cabin I and I 
So, you know, Brother Bob, man, uh, we got to chase these crazy bald heads out of the town. They're telling us about their God above. You know, every time I listen to Bob Marley, I get a little bit more insight. That that one lyric disturbed me when I was young. I was like, I thought you believed in in in, in God, Bob. Why, why are you imputing, you know, the God above? But what he was saying was, these people are using the Lord's name in vain. They're using our religious traditions. They're using our constitutional traditions in vain. It is a sin of the highest order for Victoria Newland to stand up in front of the people and use our greatest, the word justice or, you know, the, 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 the right of each group to individually self-determine when actually what we were doing as a country was intervening into Ukrainian politics and deposing an elected government. And what Bob Marley is saying is these people are crazy. That's what I'm saying. We've got to chase these crazy bald heads. Of course, he thought they were crazy English-looking bald heads. Well, this woman's a crazy bald head. She's got a full head of hair. She's a damn bald head. We got bald heads everywhere. We got them in Minnesota government. We got them in Georgian government. We got them in Arizona government. We got them in the federal government. We got them in the European government. These people are not human beings like you and me. And the only way we're going to get them out of our lives is to get involved in the political process. Because as I said previously, there are billions of us and just a few of them. All we have to do is get involved, write letters, go to a bridge with a sign that says, no war in the Ukraine. We just need to use our human will, our human agency, to put pressure on these people because they're crazy. And guess what? They are also cowards. And all we have to do is confront them, and they will run away. They will retire. And we can replace them with politicians who are not there as Darwinists, who are not there as opportunists, who are not there to enrich themselves as our current leaders are. But they're there with sacred honor. They're there to do the right thing for a short period of time with term limits because they believe in a pro-human future. They believe in children and humanity and the great spirit, Christ. However, we're going to talk about a spiritual world which informs our actions and makes us attempt 
to strive to be truthful and just and peaceful in our actions. But let's look at what these people did. Please play this next bit. Got any sound there? Maybe we don't have some sound there. Well, this is these are scenes of a armed confrontation in Kiev during the Maidan Revolution. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about uh, how this thing got started. Uh, was it a false flag? Who was firing the shots? But what ended up happening was there was a lot of people killed. Uh, there was a square, the Maidan Square, where this thing took place. Here's the police firing at the crowd indiscriminately, killing lots of people. And this thing led to the um, collapse of the pro-Russian uh, elected government and the uh, installing of a new government. And this was after the United States had spent billions of dollars uh, through the State Department and uh, was deployed with the help of George Soros. And that was the end of the uh, Ukrainian government as we knew it. This was about 2014. Why don't we go on to this next bit? I don't know what happened to the sound on that one. Let's see if we can rectify that I going set forward. up a foundation in Ukraine before Ukraine became independent of uh, Let's start that Russia. again. Everybody, this is George Soros. And here he is bragging about it, that he was involved in the Ukraine, setting up a, uh, a foundation that was aimed at and was funded by, by the way, for $5 billion funded by the U.S. State Department to, in fact, depose this pro-Russian regime. Can we get that one up again? Are we going to be able to do it? I set up a foundation in Ukraine before Ukraine became independent of uh, Russia. Um, and the foundation has been... Uh, functioning ever since. And it played a, an important part in events now. Do you, does you... Okay, so this is hilarious. This is really hilarious. This guy can't even keep it to himself. He's on with Fareed Zakaria. This is supposed to be on CNN. He's got to brag about it. He's got... This guy is so powerful. He's got so much money. And he's, you know, he kind of looks like Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars. He's kind of the, the dark master. And he said, yeah, I did it. I set up a foundation there. And this was before, you know, Ukraine extricated itself. And he, he's spinning a history that, of course, that the Ukraine was under Russian control. It may have been. I don't know. It's a version of history. But when we get down to the punchline here, it's not going to matter because this is so simple. Simple, simple, simple. We're going to make it very easy for everybody to understand how Professor Penn feels about this. All right, let's just keep rolling. Let's play the rest of this and go right into the next bit. Pardon me? Okay, go to the next one. Got to get some sound on there. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has... Uh biological research facilities. Stop. Okay, here she is again, popping up right now. Listen to what she said. And this is within the, within the context of COVID-19. And where did that virus come from, which is a, a subject for another podcast. 
Uh, people know that there's a lot of controversy. Did that come out of a lab? Was it naturally uh, generated? But what she's talking about, and we're going to play this through, in the Ukraine, there are biological weapons or biological laboratories. And she's going, and you know, Senator Rubio from Florida is asking her, Victoria Newland, tell us about this. And she's choosing her words very ultra carefully. Can we play it back a little bit just to start it over again? And let's go through it. Have chemical or biological weapons. Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working. Oh, maybe the Russians are a little bit concerned about biological facilities on their border. You know, that would concern me, like if I was coming out of my house in the morning and I went down the block, oh, a bioweapons lab a few blocks away from my house. I wouldn't like it. Not in my backyard, please. Please continue. May be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces. Stop, please. What research materials? What the hell is this crazy bald head talking about? Who is this crazy bald head? Who are the crazy bald heads that are playing around with viruses Research materials. Fuck off. This is completely crazy. We're living in a world where we the people have been given all kinds of distractions. Movies, television, smartphones. We have drugs, legalized drugs. I mean, we're so high, we are not taking action. This is my ass. My best friend died of COVID. My best friend died in my arms, in my arms. If there's even a 1% chance that my government was somehow involved in that, I want a complete, thorough accounting. I want the books open. 1%, 1% chance that my tax dollars are funding the research into weapons, biological weapons. And here she's talking about it very carefully because she knows you know, she's being asked a difficult question. This, you're looking at a crazy bald head. Please continue. Materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. What I think got some people fired up is when she said, we're worried that the Russians will get a hold of these facilities, because that implies that there's something in those facilities dangerous. So I don't know if you could shed some light on how, it can, how there can be things in the lab that are dangerous, but they not be weapons labs. Yeah, all I would all I would say, Senator, is that you know that the danger here, it seems to me, is the capacity the Russians have developed and that they've used in the past. And stop. You know, look at this man. Bullshit. This is bullshit. Let's just blame it on the Russians. It's called a scapegoat. This is a bioweapons lab in the Ukraine, and actually, I can't really get into this now. But there's pretty good paper trail on where the money came for that bioweapons lab, who owned the business. We got to get into this as the American people. And unless we, the people, we, the people, demand a full, transparent investigation 
so that we can get to the bottom of what this guy's another crazy bald head. He's got a nice head of white hair, but you're looking at a crazy bald head. Listen to him one more time. Could we just play it back like 10 seconds and let him go? Yeah, Thank all you. I would all I would say, Senator, is that, you know, that the danger here, it seems to me, is the capacity the Russians have developed and that they've used in the past and their, you know, interest in crying, trying to create false narratives here as well. Stop. Uh, to the best. Okay. Everybody's creating false narratives. That you know, when everybody's lying, the truth, remember, truth, justice. Can't have justice without the truth. You can't have peace without justice. And when these people heap bullshit story after bullshit story and blame each other, the American people just give up because you can't get to the truth. And I'm going to say, and we're going to get to it right after this guy, the truth is very simple. But this guy is just casting shade on the... When's the last time the Russians used chemical or biological weapons? What the hell is he even talking about? Go ahead, please. To my knowledge, well, you have to be careful about, you know, any of those substances you've, you've talked about, which you see in public health or research systems around the world for civilian purposes. Well, you have to be careful about that. That is in no way akin to the kind of threats that would be posed by, you know, weapons research and development or weapons Stop. facilities. Stop. What the hell are they doing research in this for civilian purposes? This is bullshit of the highest level. What he's saying is, okay, we're going to play with chemical agents for civilian purposes. You know, I'm not stupid. These people are crazy bald heads. Bob was singing about them 30 years ago. We got to get these people out of our town. We got to kick them out of our life. We got to get them out of our political life and replace them with political leaders that have sacred honor. Very critical. Now, let's just make this very ultra simple. You see behind here, uh, something from 1823, the Monroe Doctrine. And the Monroe Doctrine was articulated in President James Monroe's seventh annual message to Congress on December 2nd, 1823. The European powers, according to Monroe, were obligated to respect the Western Hemisphere as the United States' sphere of interest. That sounds very nice. What it really meant was, hey, cross the line, we're killing you. This is our backyard. Get out of here. We have nothing but death for any Western colonial power that incurs into Canada, incurs into Mexico, even Central and South America. This is the Monroe Doctrine. We will fight to keep you out of our backyard. We will not allow you into our backyard. We will kill every one of you sons of bitches if you come into our backyard. And that was established in 1823, and it still exists today. That doctrine is still bedrock of American foreign policy. So now let's go on, and let's see how this foreign policy played out. In 1959, Fidel Castro took control of the island nation of Cuba, only 90 miles from the state of Florida. He established Cuba as a communist nation and began forging a close relationship with the Soviet Union, 
which concerned the United States. In April of 1961, the United States made an attempt to remove Castro from power. The U.S. trained Cuban exiles who had escaped Castro by moving to Florida and supported them in an invasion of Cuba. This became known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. The invasion failed and Castro continued to tighten his grip over Cuba. In August of 1962, the Cubans and Soviets began secretly establishing sites to launch nuclear missiles from Cuba. With the use of these missile bases, the Soviet Union could have first strike capability against the United States. On October 15th, the United States discovered the existence of these missiles. President John F. Kennedy and his advisors considered several different strategies ranging from diplomacy to a blockade or even a full-scale invasion of Cuba. President Kennedy eventually chose a blockade. The U.S. Navy placed ships in the Caribbean Sea surrounding Cuba and would not allow any Soviet ships to reach Cuba. On October 22nd, Kennedy announced the threat to the nation, causing panic and turmoil across the country. Throughout the next several days, the crisis continued to escalate as both sides refused to back down. The United States insisted that the missile bases be removed, while the Soviet Union and Cuba refused to admit that the bases even existed. As the days continued, the Soviet Union remained diligent, and the Kennedy administration began preparing the early stages of an invasion plan. On October 25th, the blockade was challenged for the first time. Soviet ships approached the quarantine zone, but American ships held their ground. The Soviet vessels were forced to turn back, and the blockade continued. On that same day, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, confronted the Soviets in the U.N. Assembly, revealing photographic evidence that forced the Soviet Union to admit the missile bases existed. The crisis finally ended on October 28, 1962, when President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev reached a secret agreement the Soviets would remove their missile bases in Cuba, and in exchange, the United States would remove missile bases in Turkey, which were close to the Soviet Union's borders. To this day, the Cuban Missile Crisis is regarded as the closest that the United States has ever come to nuclear war. The event was one of the most intense moments in the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union and one of the defining moments of the Cold War. It's good enough, thank you. Well, when this was filmed, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the most dangerous moment in modern American history, but it's now the second most dangerous moment. We're living in the most dangerous moment. And I wanna make this very, very simple. I wanna get through all the spin of who did what to who and why because there's a Russian story, and there's a Western story, and there's evidence on every side. But let's just make it very simple. 
if we have a Monroe Doctrine that says we will not allow powers to be close to our borders, don't you think the Russians think the same way? We're right over there. When I say we, we are arming the Ukrainians. And I'm going to tell you, I think there's plenty of U.S. military or U.S. military contractors actually in the Ukraine. In fact, a Navy SEAL recently died there, and the press release said, please look it up, that he had gone AWOL. He went AWOL, he ran away from his unit, and he died in the Ukraine. In other words, he was in the U.S. military as a Navy SEAL, which is the high point of being a warrior. And he ended up in the U.S. He, he ran away from the U.S. military, went AWOL, absent without official leave, popped up in the Ukraine and died there and had nothing to do with the United States government. Okay, it's possible. See, you know, all propaganda and bullshit is based on the possible. It is a possible story that this is a wacko guy that ran away from his unit and went to fight the Russians. It's possible. There's a 1% chance. The other 99% chance was he was a Navy SEAL deployed in the Ukraine by the U.S. secret intelligence agencies. He died there, and they needed to cover up story. I'd say that's 99% chance. So what this means is there's the highest level of U.S. warriors. They're either AWOL and they're there on their own recognizance, kind of like Mission Impossible, or they're there on a U.S. government mission with over $100 billion of U.S. aid in terms of military materials and high-tech weaponry. And it's right on the Russian border. So let's not get caught up at who's right, who's wrong, what the story is, what the story isn't. We're on their border. When the Russians came to our border in Cuba in 1962, we were ready to have a nuclear war over it. We forced them to back down because we blockaded Cuba and we said, you better get the hell out of here or we're going to go toe-to-toe right on our 90 miles from Florida. Well, this thing is right on their border. Don't you think they feel the same way? What crazy bald head decided it's okay to do this? Because it's just not. It's risking the future of my life and the life of my children. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe, hit the like button. We'll be here twice a week. We're forming a community. This is a politically active community of people that want to tell the truth so that we can have real justice and we can find peace. And I'd like to just crawl out with what young people were saying in the 80s when children were still being educated, had independent thinking, and were aware of what was going on in the world. Please, let's go out with this last bit. Thank you the whole world is just going to burn when it happens. All you have to do is just push, a, uh, just push one button. If you're scared in your subconscious, then there's something that has to be going on in your conscious. And it has something has to be going on in reality, and there is, and we've got to stop it. They don't care about our opinions. They just want to get money and get rich. Uh, but what's going to happen to us? And then they're always encouraging kids not to have violence, not to fight. Well, this is encouraging us more. They're saying, don't fight this. Talk it out. Well, look at that. What kind of influence is that on kids? It'd be killing the poor people, like the poor people don't have nothing. And wow, like they be just, we was talking, like just building bombs just to show how powerful you are. The adults who aren't, who aren't taking the responsibility are threatening our lives and they are not protecting us. Dear Mr. President, I wish there could be a place in this world 
for people to be safe in their homes. We should have hope because if they have hope, then they will do the right things to help save the world. Thank you very much, and we'll see you soon again.